Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. This is a special episode because we're at PAX right now. Oh, I was trying to think of why it was a special episode. And oh. I was like, it, I was like, oh, it is 125. That's not as exciting as like 150. And yes. I was like, we're not talking about anything serious. So it's not a very special episode. No, but we are in a hotel room. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> We're in a fancy hotel room. We're, we are. We're staying at the uh, the Ritz Carlton. They they actually have the classic Gaming Brothers presidential suite. Yes, we rented out the first the top rows, the top floors, the top rows, like <laughs> the top rows. But yes, we are at PAX. So if you are someone that we've met at PAX, and we said make sure to listen to our episode that's coming out tomorrow on Sunday. Hello, we know you're listening. And if you want to meet up with us after listening to this episode, it's probably too late. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. Though it would be really creepy if someone were to come up to us and say, hey, I enjoyed today's episode. Because we would be gone and that person that came up to us <laughs> would be a stranger. <laughs> But if for some reason we are still at PAX and you do find us and you do listen to today's episode, I'll give you 50 bucks. <laughs> Whoa! I'm going to keep that in and hold Seth accountable. Sure. It's all right. It won't be cash. It'll have to be a Venmo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Seth, welcome to this episode. Welcome to the brother. jungle. <laughs> what have you been playing? Uh, recently, I've been playing uh, a game that came out in 2017 called Prey, developed by Arcane Studios and published by Bethesda. In Prey, you are on a space station called Talos 1 that's orbiting the moon in the year 2032. I like, what part that I like about Prey, one of the many things that I like about Prey, is that at some point in time, they developed the ability to live very long in humanity, and JFK k is like a leader in the company and yeah. he but he died in 2030 or something like that so I'm, I'm a big fan of alternate history so i think prey's alternate history is kind of fun and in prey you you're an important person on the station and the station is being overrun by aliens and you need to figure out what's going on and you spend the time traveling around the station, unlocking areas, sometimes backtracking and uh, collecting passwords and figuring out uh, and following the general quests that are given to you. I really enjoy uh, Arcane Studios. They also did the Dishonored series. Um, yep. So the Dishonored series is really good. I enjoyed Dishonored, so I'm enjoying Prey. It's cool because I think Dishonored came out first, mm -hmm. and Dishonored is you're like a magic thief, or well, magic murderer, I guess, or assassin, yeah. bodyguard. You have magic powers. Prey, it's sci-fi, and you have like technical powers because you have like cool sci sci-fi weapons and you gain techie scientific powers which is kind of cool it's just neat how like arcane layers in that extraordinary ability in a fantasy setting and in a sci-fi setting and how they do it i just think it's kind of cool how they do that and and prey also pulls a lot of inspiration from like system shock and yep and Bioshock and all those guys. But I think especially System Shock in terms of like the story and the the atmosphere. Because System Shock is entirely set in a spaceship and has to deal with like an outbreak. Yeah. So you're kind of in a similar boat in, in Prey. Yeah. And there's a lot more jump scares in Prey. Um, mm, yeah. Because it's, so it's not a horror game. 
but it, it does have jump scares and the jump scares occur because the alien that you're fighting they are called the typhon and some of them have the ability to mimic these breed are called mimics and they're able to mimic different objects so they will just be like just like a roll of toilet paper or like a can of like soda and then all of a sudden you'll be walking by and they'll jump and they'll turn into the mimic and attack you and you have to uh kill them and or detain them or what have you i usually smash them until they're like a fine paste (laughs) yes however it's not a true true jump because there is a distinct mimic noise that occurs when the mimic reveals itself uh so you know you're being attacked by mimics i will say there were a couple i played prey as well i think it was actually recently played for me a few episodes back but Mm -hmm. i think that's why i picked it up again probably there were a couple moments that uh made me jump because the mimics won't automatically change they're kind of smart in a weird way so like i remember i was in a storeroom and i picked up an object and i was like i was trying to pick up an object and i literally walked over to an object and i clicked on it and nothing happened i was like oh that's weird and then i clicked on it again and it like scooted over and i was like "Uh oh and then it changed into a mimic and attacked me so it's like they will kind of jump out at you um in in a way i really like in prey the continuity though so like the space station is mostly abandoned except for the aliens because the aliens have killed a lot of the people and there's a part in prey where there is a dead guy and on the guy he has a note and it just says like these typhon creatures are able to become different things and they're just like able to mimic things so i'm gonna put a sticky note on anything that's not a mimic and then you go into a room and it's just full of sticky notes that you can pick up and they all say not a mimic on different things and the stuff that do do not have sticky notes are mimics it's a fun game i've been i'm enjoying it i'm trying to get to the dlc i think i've also recently played prey but probably not for a while but uh i've been enjoying it um i'm trying to get to the dlc because uh i would really like to play the moon crash dlc because i've been told that it's similar to death loop and i want to play that before I buy Deathloop, another game by Arcane Studios. I like the stuff that they put forward. I think it always is like a high caliber games. I just would like to finish out Prey because I feel like I should probably beat Prey and experience the DLC before I uh, play a game that essentially the DLC spawned. Not that Deathloop has anything to do with the Typhons or Mimics. It's just like the game mechanic was inspired by it. So Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Seth, recently I've been playing a game called Loria, L-O-R-I-A. Loria came out in 2018. It was made by a company called Loria, so easy to remember. And it's uh, a real-time strategy game done in the style of classic real-time strategy games, uh, specifically the Warcraft style. playing a lot of Warcraft games. Yeah, I've been really in a Warcraft mood. I get in these weird moods, um, as as our listeners will probably have noticed, where I'll like play a certain style of game um, for a period of time. Loria in particular is a game that is, I would call very similar to like warcraft 2.5 i think that's like what i saw in a review and it's a lot of elements from warcraft 2 and a lot of elements from warcraft 3 combined into one game which uh has very much an aesthetic of warcraft 2 that kind of 
more cartoony, uh, almost 2D top-down perspective. But it also has like hero elements that can uh, the heroes can level up and the heroes can pick up items, which is a Warcraft 3 element. So it's got some, I would say, gameplay similarities to Warcraft 3, but more of a design aesthetic to Warcraft 2, which is fun. Loria, for from a plot standpoint, is about two races of beings who are fighting each other. One are humans and the other are definitely not orcs. <laughs> So it, it is really like, it's like a Warcraft spiritual follow-up of sorts. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 a fun time. I, I've been enjoying the bit of that I played. I'm playing the campaign right now, which has like a story. And it is free to play. You can uh, get it for free on Steam or GOG. And it seems like a complete game that you can get for free. So it's not like, it's not like free to play. There aren't like things you have to buy, but. Is the graphics like, because the game was made in 2018. So are the graphics... The graphics are more like Warcraft 2 style. Yeah, but are they like 2018 Warcraft 2 style? Like, are they like fresh and like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. Not like dated. No, no, no. It doesn't look dated at all. And it's like the UI is... Like the user experience is a 2018 user experience. Yes, it's just more of like a cartoony style of graphics. I got you. Like if you look at a picture, you might easily confuse it for like a graphical mod of Warcraft 3 that makes it look like Warcraft 2. Like the UI is 100% ripped from Warcraft 3. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, that's Loria. That's what I've been playing recently. So today we're going to be talking about the Ultima series of games. So we'll talk a little bit about Ultima 1, uh, Ultima's predecessor, and uh, Ultima Online. We're not going to go talk about the other bunch of Ultimas in between. Yeah, there's like, I think, like 15 games. <laughs> it would take us a while. Maybe in other episodes, we'll talk about Ultima again. So, Zach, do you have any memories of Ultima? Not really. So, I didn't really start playing Ultima until I was older and in getting into retro computing. So, Ultima has kind of a long history when it comes to the Apple II specifically, as it was originally programmed on the Apple II, which we'll talk about. And when I got an Apple II and finally got a working disk drive, I made myself a copy of Ultima to play. So, I, I have played Ultima on the original Apple II, but uh, that was much later in my life. I didn't get a working disk drive until like during COVID when like the beginning of COVID. So like less than a year or so ago. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly familiar with Ultima's predecessors. Um, I, I've been a fan of games like Zork or Colossal Cave Adventure, which are all essentially predecessors to, to Ultima. Um, so I, I'm familiar with those type of games. What about you, Seth? Yeah, though, before we get on to my memories, Colossal Cave is getting a new game. Yes, yeah, they're doing like a remake. Yeah, Roberta Williams and Ken Williams are working on a remake of Colossal Cave. So if you like Colossal Cave Adventure, stay tuned. So my memories of Ultima are actually more my friend's memories of Ultima, and it's mostly of Ultima Online. So my friends, would tell me stories about the times that they played Ultima Online and did crazy things in it Um, because there was a lot of flexibility with Ultima Online and you're able to do a, a lot of different things in it that you could not do in like as MMOs kind of evolved uh, MMOs MMOs which Ultima Online is an MMO as they evolve they got away from what MMOs were originally about about which was like the connectivity of people and became more of a theme park uh-huh. uh, so like world of warcraft star wars uh, the old republic they're not about like connecting people and you know like doing weird things like trying to like sell somebody uh a, a key to a boat that doesn't exist or something like you know like you're not trying to like i don't know mess with people i get through the game's intent um but it they're really 
constructed that you kind of go through this like journey that's relatively linear to a point. I mean, when you play World of Warcraft, it's open-ended, but the end is the same. Right, yeah. Where Ultima Online, I think, was a little more flexible in regards to what you could could do. I, it was a simpler UI. Um, I believe it's kind of similar to um, how, like, Station 13 runs, where if you have an imagination, you can do almost anything. But first, let's talk about Ultima. And before that, to talk about Ultima, you have to talk about the person who gave us Ultima, and that's Richard Garriott, or otherwise known as Lord British. Richard Garriott was born in 1961 in Cambridge, England. His father, Owen Garriott, worked as one of NASA's first scientist astronauts and flew on Skylab 3 and the space shuttle mission STS-9. Both of his parents were originally from Oklahoma, and they met each other in their hometown of Enid. They later then moved to Cambridge and then back to the U.S., this time to Nassau Bay in Texas, where Garriott really spent most of his early life. In 1975, Richard was exposed to the world of computers while in high school. He found himself frustrated with the one semester of basic language class that the school was offering, though was able to convince the higher-ups to let him use the school's teletype to program games. According to the documentary Level Up, which is available on Netflix, he was basically given a free period of in his schooling to spend alone in a room where they kept the teletype and he would use this time to create games based on Lord of the Rings and his favorite RPG of the time, which was newer Dungeons and Dragons. And for those who are not familiar with what a teletype is, it's a it's a device that's used to communicate with a computer. In Richard's case, this computer was a DEC PDP-11, which was a 16-bit microcomputer. And I say that in quotes because microcomputers at this time period were the size of cabinets. Uh, and uh, this microcomputer was a mainframe that had a basic interpreter that the school had and they likely kept in like their basement because that's where schools often would keep large computers. In the early days before personal computers, individuals would be required to interact with the computer using either a teletype or something called a dumb terminal. Uh, if anyone's ever played Fallout, the scattered around computers that you encounter aren't actually computers. Those are dumb terminals that are interacting with a central mainframe. The teletype, as the name implies, functions like a typewriter, and it will print out text in real time as it is input on the computer. So when you look at a teletype, it looks like it's typing out like almost like automatically. So, But it looks almost identical to what a typewriter would look like. The game that Richard were designing were text-based, mostly because the PDP could not do graphics, it could only do text. So these would be similar to what you might think of like Rogue, which was an early roguelike, where the graphics were all represented by text characters. So a person on the screen might be represented by maybe the letter T, and maybe an object would be represented by like an at symbol or, a, or the letter O. A ZZT, which we talked about, was also like character-driven as well. Yeah, but the difference being that ZZT is ANSI-driven. Uh, PDP could not do ANSI. It could only do, like, text-text. So oh, you, you're yeah. limited to what you see on your keyboard, essentially. Versus, like, ANSI, which has weird symbols. Yeah, ANSI, you can do symbols or even some very basic graphics using, like, color tricks and stuff like that. But this was, this was even more basic. <laughs> During Richard's time working on games, he began to use the pseudonym of British 
Irish, which he says was given to him by his friends due to the fact that he was born in the UK. You know, I can imagine this happening because a young Richard Garriott would explain to all of his friends that he was born in Britain and then would stay alone and make D&D games on teletype. In 1979, Richard was introduced to the Apple II while he was working at a store called Computerland. The Apple II was far more advanced than the computers he was working on at school, because not only could you hook up an Apple II to a monitor or a television, but it could display color graphics. This gave him the idea to develop a game with graphical representations of what he would be describing in his text adventures. Now, his first graphical game would go on to be Akalapath World of Doom. And it was programmed entirely in Applesoft Basic while Richard was still attending high school, which is still pretty impressive. It was originally under the title D&D, and he originally never planned to sell the game, but his boss at Computerland said, no, you should probably definitely sell this. And Richard would go on to spend $200, which is equivalent to $792, to package and sell his game for $20, or what would be $79 back then. So this is what your 200 bucks got. It was packaged in a Ziploc bag with photocopies of the instructions and a cover drawn by Richard's mom. What a cover is this? Richard's mom is not a bad artist. No, she's not. So there's like this mountainscape that has a tunnel and there's definitely like some sort of adventurer holding a torch in front of the tunnel. And it says to the left, beware foolish mortal, uh, you trespass in. And then to the right, it says Acklebath, World of Doom by Richard Garriott. And then it says in bigger text, Beyond Adventure Lies Acklebath, a game of fantasy, cunning, and danger. Ten different high-res monsters combined with perfect perspective and infinite dungeon levels create the world of Acklebath for Apple II. Now, a copy of the game eventually found its way to California Pacific Computer Company, and they liked it. So they reached out and said, hey, Richard, we'll publish this game. And so instead of just selling it in his local game store, he was going to be able to get into distribution. So he took a flight to California with his parents, because he had to, because he was still young, and he struck a deal to receive $5, which was equivalent to $20 at the time, for every copy of the game that sold. The retail version would now be released for $35, uh, uh, which would be equivalent to $138, and it would sell 30,000 copies, which made Richard a total of $150,000, which was equivalent to almost $600,000, which is a lot of money for a 17-year-old yeah. high schooler. Richard is actually quoted saying that Acklebeth had the best return on investment than any of his games, and is quoted that his later games were all downhill from there. <laughs> California Pacific had a fun idea when it came to marketing the game, and which was to include a contest. They credited the game to Lord British, not to Richard Garriott, and worked with the magazine Soft Talk to have readers try and figure out who Lord British really was. Now, while Acalabeth World of Doom is fairly different from the future Ultima games, it is ultimately considered part of the series. It actually is included in the official Ultima collection in 1998 and is sometimes referred to as Ultima Zero. Acalabeth plays similarly to earlier text adventure games, with the major change being that the game has visuals 
The visuals, however, are very simple. Everything is essentially designed to look like outlines of what they're supposed to be. So when you're going down a hallway, it's really represented by like four lines that converge far away and make kind of like a hallway shape. Some concepts that were introduced in the game would later reoccur in future Ultima games and also future RPGs, which are like things like requiring food to survive, a top-down worldview, first-person dungeons, and the use of hotkeys for various commands. Because the game was written entirely in AppleSoft Basic and not in assembly language, it allowed for players to modify the source code to suit their needs, such as remove randomization of certain items and alter statistics. Uh, for those of you who don't know how most basic programs work, when you load a basic program in a computer like an Apple II, you type list and it will list the entire program, every line of code. All you have to do is scroll up with your cursor keys and change whatever you wanted and then press run and you have literally just made the game that you want to play. <laughs> Be like, ah, oh, yes, I need to have my armor value from 10 to 1000. Yeah, one example I read was that apparently there was a, a weapon that had a chance of either doing like zero damage or like crit damage and you could just change it so that it never has the zero variable. It always crits. Um, so if you want to cheat, it's very, very easy where it wouldn't be so much if it was programmed in assembly. It was very easy for those who knew what they were doing or had yes. some basic idea of basic, which many computer users did at that time. I would say if you had an early computer, like an Apple II or a Commodore 64 back in the 80s, you likely had some familiarity with basic because every manual came with basic back then. Now, Richard's next game would be Ultima, released in 1981. Ultima takes a lot of what was introduced in Aquabath and arguably vastly improves it. For one thing, while much of the code is still in AppleSoft Basic, a friend of Richard's, Ken W. Arnold, wrote code in assembly language for the tile-based graphics. Much of the first Ultima's code, however, does borrow from Aquabath, such as the code used to create the first-person dungeons. Ultima has a few different views, an overworld displayed as a top-down view, a third-person view, and a first-person dungeon view. Another addition was science fiction elements, such as a space segment that was likely inspired by an Atari game that Richard and Ken Arnold enjoyed playing called Star Raiders. After the release of Ultima II, The Revenge of the Enchantress, which came out in August of 1982, Richard and his brother Robert founded Origin Systems doing so with their father, Owen, and a programmer named Chuck Bush. Their first games as Origin Systems was Ultima 3 Exodus, and in 1988, the company would have 15 developers in Austin, Texas, and another 35 in New Hampshire. Despite their small size, they sold upwards of 1.5 million software units by 1992, which was the year that they were purchased by Electronic Arts. So Origin uh, Systems would go on to be bought by EA. There were some other people that joined Origin Systems uh, in 87, Chris Roberts joined, and Chris Roberts would go on to work on the Wing Commander series, which Origin Systems would put out. And so really, if you look at Origin Systems catalog of games, it is Wing Commanders and Ultima games. Yeah, and John Romero also worked at Origin for like a year or two before he went on to go uh, found id. Now, after the first Ultima, there were 10 more numbered games in the series. Many of these early games had similar mechanics to the first 
first Ultima, with various tweaks and changes being made to things like graphics and story. In fact, for those of you who are interested in the early Ultima games, you can tell it becomes a more complex game by the number of floppy disks it fits in. So like the first Ultima is on one disk, and then the second Ultima I believe is on two, and then it just kind of increases. Now, Ultima 6 The False Prophet would be the first Ultima game that did not have an Apple II version, also featured a point-and-click interface with commands being streamlined into icons. So it really wouldn't even worked on an Apple II. Apple II did not have native mouse functionality. Now, without getting too in-depth with these games, as there are a lot of Ultima games, the plot typically revolves around a grand quest akin to other fantasy adventure games. So, for example, in Ultima 1, there is a quest involving having to destroy something called the Gem of Immortality, which is being used by the evil wizard Mondaine. The sequel, Ultima 2, picks up right after the defeat of Mondaine, when an enchantress begins to try to take over the world. So as you can tell, the games are very like what you'd expect from a fantasy game. There's an evil wizard. He's trying to do bad things. You have to stop the evil wizard. Now the games would start becoming more complex with changes made to not only graphical quality, but also overall structure. The games went from very simple graphics uh, displayed with only a handful of colors to being fully realized worlds with high quality textures and sprites. In 1997, however, there was a dynamic shift in terms of gaming that grabbed Ultima in its wake. That was something called the internet. Now, as listeners may remember, either through age or listening to this podcast, online games have been around for a lot longer than people think. In the early days of the bulletin board systems, players could log on to a multi-user dungeon and play an RPG with players from across the world, known as MUDs. However, graphical MMORPGs were something that were few and far between, with titles like Habitat, the Realm Online, and Neverwinter Nights, the first one, uh, being the few that players may had familiarities with. Ultima Online really came at the perfect time, because 1997 was the same year that the Neverwinter Nights MMORPG was shut down. So there was a bunch of people who were playing a fantasy RPG, and they no longer had that fantasy RPG to play. Development actually began on Ultima Online in 1995, and was presented to the public as Ultima Online Shattered Legacy. Richard's company, Origin, claimed that more than 3,000 participants were in the alpha's testing stages. The game would also feature things like persistent player housing, skill-based character progression, crafting player economy, and PvP. All things that were really fresh for the scene. There were also plans to implement the artificial life engine, but ultimately that was scrapped in the game's beta. Richard was quoted as saying, We thought it was fantastic. We spent an enormous amount of time and effort on it, but what happened was all the players went in and just killed everything. Uh, so fast that the game couldn't spawn them fast enough to make the simulation even begin. Because if you are going to go into doing anything, understand that players will utterly destroy it. <laughs> I just like the idea that they developed this artificial life engine, but the players murdered it. <laughs> like, life could not spawn because players existed. That's right. Ultima Online would enter beta 1997. During a stress test, tragedy struck, however. You see, Richard would often log into the game during beta in order to communicate with other players as a GM. In the game, he would appear as his alter ego, Lord British. Lord British is also in many of the Ultima games. He's an NPC who's extremely powerful, and 
and usually invulnerable. And in Ultima Online, there was no exception. Lord British was invulnerable, as Richard Garriott had access to admin controls. During the stress test, there was a crash, though. And after rebooting, Richard forgot to enable his invulnerability. In this brief moment before he could give himself god mode, player named Reigns, with a Z, cast a fire field spell and killed Lord British. The player Reigns was banned because he killed Lord British. <laughs> But not really, because Origin said it wasn't that it was for the assassination. It was because he had prior complaints against him and the assassination highlighted them. Players would actually protest his ban and the treatment of other players who witnessed the assassination who were also killed by the game's producer, Star Long. So essentially, <laughs> what happened... <laughs> was somebody figured out a way to kill a GM character who didn't have his protections up and everyone who witnessed was also assassinated <laughs> by a producer of the game who was kind of like I guess Richard Garriott's enforcer went around and made sure that anyone who witnessed the crime against Lord British was also killed. I love GM and player interactions. Uh, Ultima Online has had a lot of them. I had friends who like would do all sorts of like they would like do weird things with like their housing and their boats and like they would sell things to people then steal it back and what you could do in Ultima Online was pretty extensive. People got married in Ultima Online. The beta would ultimately end in September of 1997 where everybody in the beta was killed. Um, essentially the end of the world scenario occurred. Multitudes of monsters spawned in and killed every character. Now in the same month the retail version launched on public servers. It received 100,000 players in six months, causing massive lag issues. Servers, however, would soon open up around the world to account for the popularity. In 2000, Richard resigned from Origin, and Lord British left with him. This led to fan fiction to explain Lord British's sudden disappearance from the Ultima Online game. Because players would log in and be like, huh, that NPC Lord British is gone because Lord British left. Now, this version of the game saw various expansion packs and uh, various like events that players could attend. Its subscriber count reached around 250,000 by March of 2003. And in 2004, Origin Systems was dissolved by Electronic Arts. EA would then move the headquarters for Ultima Online to Fairfax, Virginia. A decline occurred in its subscribers, however. In 2008, only about 100,000 total subscribers were accounted for, so 150,000 less than there were in 2003. The market share would also drop to about 6% of the online gaming subscriptions because a little game called World of Warcraft had launched in 2004. Right. And so the, the do-anything-you-want-in-an-MORPG has evolved to a a theme park ride. For those of you who have never seen uh, Ultima Online, it is older looking. Like, it looks like a, a game that came out in the 90s. It's like sprites. It's a isometric view. Um, it's kind of like more like... Yeah, the sprites are cartoonish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like, it, they're not bad looking sprites. It's kind of like looking at a really high quality Super Nintendo game, maybe. But like, uh, like World of Warcraft is so like completely different than that. World of Warcraft 
graphics this full 3d game uh you know it's just a different experience and thus why more people would go to it in 2006 ea purchased mythic entertainment and gave management of their mmorpgs to that team meaning ultima online anti-cheating software called punkbuster was integrated into the game by mythic and they released a major overhaul called kingdom reborn which did offer a complete rework of the graphics the first one since 2001 another expansion was released in 2009 called stygian abyss uh, which was actually the name of one of the ultima underworld games and around this time the development um, shifted from traditional expansion packs to booster packs which offered smaller updates but at a more frequent basis the first booster pack called high seas released in 2010 this was also the last booster pack they were like we're gonna make all these small little updates frequently no we're just gonna make one small update once in 2014 a company called broadsword studio took over development of ultima online and it moved to a free-to-play model in 2018. Ultima Online is still running today. We should make characters. We should make characters. Now, to do the numbers, according to the Book of Ultima, which is the Bible of Ultima. No, it's just the Bible. <laughs> it's one of the Gospels of the Bible. John's letters to Ultima. <laughs> Ultima would go on to sell more than 50,000 copies right out of the gate and uh, made a mark in the new medium of computer video games. Because at the time that Ultima came out, selling 50,000 games was amazing oh, yeah. like getting 50,000 games shipped on an apple 2 was unheard of by the time ultima 2 was ready to be released uh, the publisher of ultima california pacific the guys who picked it up and were like this is great had gone out of business so by the time ultima 2 was ready to go richard gary had to find a new publisher and he wanted to also up the standard of video game production where at the time of ultima 2 most video games were packaged in ziploc bags many apple II games were just put in a ziploc bag with the uh, like maybe some cover art and instruction booklet and the disc and sold and a number of them were arcade ports so you get an arcade port you put it in a ziploc bag you sell it for an apple II, and that's that's it richard wanted it in a box he wanted it with instructions book like a real instruction book and he wanted lore material to go with it and most importantly of all he wanted a cloth map of his world. I think really because just Richard wanted a cloth map of his world. Every publisher wanted to publish him, except when he said that he wanted all of these other things. Then most of the publishers walked away and said, no, I'm going to make another video game and put it in a Ziploc bag. I'm not going to make a box that I'm going to have to pay for, print a real book, get more materials, and get a cloth map. I'm not doing that. It's going to raise the cost of production on us, except for Sierra Online. And Sierra Online said, that's a great idea. We love doing stuff like that. Ultima 2 would get all the materials it wants and would be greeted with equal success and sell 50,000 copies as well. Now, by the time Ultima 3 came around, Origin Systems has been created and they're able to go on and self-publish. And Ultima 3 would go on to sell 120,000 units. I think it's important to note, though, one of the reasons Origin Systems even was formed was because Richard and Sierra did not get along after Ultima 2 came out. So Ultima 3 would go on to sell for the 120,000 units. And then between Ultima 1 through 5, so if you've taken 4 and 5 into consideration, they would have sold 470,000 copies by the year of 1990 in the u.s now a company called pony canyon uh worked with richard gary and released a japanese version of the game and they sold 
100,000 copies on the home computers in Japan and another 300,000 units on the Famicom system. Now, as mentioned, there are a lot of games in the Ultima franchise and we could probably do an episode dedicated to specific ones in the future. Uh, I know Ultima 2 is actually, I think, considered better than Ultima 1 by a lot of people. And then I think like Ultima 4 is considered one of the best. But anyway, a number of the games were ported to various consoles, such as uh, Ultima 3, 4, and 5, which were all brought over to the Famicom and then translated over to the NES um, in English. So you can actually find Ultima 3 as an NES cartridge if you wanted to play it without pulling on Apple 2 or getting it on GOG. Besides the numbered sequels, there are also a number of spin-offs. Two games were published under the same engine as Ultima 6, The Savage Empire in 1990 and Martian Dreams in 1991. 6 and 7 were also ported to the Super Nintendo along with The Savage Empire in Japan. And there were also two titles that were released on the Game Boy called Ruins of Virtue and Ruins of Virtue 2. Now, there are also three games in another spin-off called Ultima Underworld. Uh, this includes The Stygian Abyss in 1992, Labyrinth of the Worlds in 1993, and Underworld Ascendant in 2018. Underworld Ascendant, despite being part of the Underworld series, was not able to use Ultima in their brand due to licensing reasons. So it's now time for our Byway Pass segment, where we're excited to tell you about games that we are looking to either buy, wait, or pass on. I'm going to go first. Ah, uh, I'm actually excited about the game that I picked for you. I don't think you're gonna. I don't think you're gonna buy it, but I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited about the game that I picked for you, and you may buy it. Um, it's a um dark horror game. Ooh. That is inspired by the novels of H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. And you're the only one who really knows what's going on with uh, animation that's similar to 13, you know, like a little comic book style. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. It's Forgive Me, Father by Bite Barrel 1C Entertainment. It came out April 7th, 2022. We're going to take a quick break while I take a look at this game and we'll be right back. we're back so forgive me father is being developed by bite barrel and was published by 1c entertainment um it's actually a game that's like part of i think a not really a not really a series but like a collection of games that uh 1c has published um called the uh this is my boomstick series of sorts where they have a couple of games in a, in a bundle currently that you can get um which include um this viscera fest and dread templar now um forgive me father looks interesting i i I like the idea of this kind of like H.P. Lovecraft um, cosmic horror inspired world. The graphics are kind of like a, a 13 style, almost comic book e style graphics. But at the same time, they don't really appeal to me. There's something about them that makes me feel like I don't usually get motion sick when I play games, but there's something about them that I'm like, I feel like I could get motion sick playing this game, which is not wicked common, but sometimes just the style of graphics with the style of gameplay can really like throw me off. Um, that being said, said i'm gonna put this game down as a wait i'm gonna to try to check out some gameplay footage outside of what they've put on their steam page i'm gonna check out some like youtubers or let's players get kind of an idea for this game and then maybe pick it up um I, i'm gonna say it's probably more likely that i'll grab it but maybe i'll wait for it to be like on sale just uh give it some time for me to look into before i um, make a really final decision so likely likely we'll buy it eventually but I'll wait for now okay seth are you ready for your game yeah so seth in this game 
It's a game very similar to, I would say, Advance Wars. So it's a tactical role-playing strategy game, uh, turn-based. Now, in the game, you have to fight some creatures, monsters, if you would, as as a military. And in you, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> what game is it? It's called Kaiju Wars. Oh, I thought it was going to be Metal Slug again. It's uh, due out April 28th, being developed by Foolish Mortals Games and Michael Long, and published by Foolish Mortal Games. We're going to take a short break while I go look it up. All right, we're back. So Kaiju uh, Wars looks interesting. It looks like a game that I could probably get into. Uh, sometimes I'm in the mood for these type of strategy games. I think I'm going to put it down as a wait, though it does have a demo available. So I'm actually going to download the demo and play it and then base my decision on whether I'm going to buy it based on the demo. If I get hooked on it, then maybe I'll, I'll buy it as soon as it comes out on April 28th. If Great. I don't get hooked on it, maybe I'll forget it comes out. Fair enough. All right. That is episode 125. If you enjoyed the episode, certainly reach out to us, classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com or you can reach out to us via our Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, or Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Be sure to like and rate us on all the various podcasting applications, uh, such as Amazon or iTunes or Spotify. Uh, make sure to, you know, ring bells, subscribe, do all those things. Um, and that's all I can think of unless I'm missing anything. Seth, anything else? Do you have anything you want to add? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the classic gaming brothers. That's, That's right. That's right. Yeah, Richard Gary did go to space. We never mentioned he did, that. He did go to space. Yeah, so just in case anyone's listening in this far, Richard Garriott has gone to space. <laughs> <laughs>